This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the multi-pronged campaign to prevent as many people from voting as possible, and what we can do about it. Clips today come from Counterspin, The Bradcast, Sunday Civics, The Gerrymandering Project, and Amicus, with our call to action giving tips on how to prepare yourself and others for the upcoming election. And remember that all of the details about each clip, including their source and original air date, are listed in the show notes and should be visible from whichever device you're using to listen. How much impact could the addition of a single question to the U.S. Census have? So much that 12 states are suing the Trump administration to counter the move. The question in question is, are you a U.S. citizen? It might raise eyebrows coming from any White House, but coming from this one, the last-minute move raises tremendous concerns that only begin with the likelihood that the question would depress response. Karen Hobart Flynn is a longtime democracy reform activist and the president of Common Cause. She joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Karen Hobart Flynn. Thank you for having me. Well, what are the big concerns about adding a question about citizenship to the census? You know, Americans' founders created the census and wrote into the Constitution a requirement that their successors need to count all the nation's inhabitants every 10 years because they understood that for a truly representative democracy, we must know how many of us there are in the country and the states in which we live. So inhabitants, not citizens, was the requirement. So people are alarmed when they see for the first time since 1950 that this administration wants to put a citizenship question in the census without any kind of testing and in an atmosphere where we have seen this administration with its anti-immigrant rhetoric and long list of anti-immigrant policies and proposals, many that have been struck down by judges, it's created a tidal wave of fear and concern that any information they provide to the census, although it's supposed to be kept private, could be used to deport family members and and neighbors. Absolutely. You know, I mean, in another context, I might have started with a sort of rhetorical, you know, what's the big deal? You know, but I think it's just so obvious uh, in this case what the big deal potentially is. It's wholly appropriate, isn't it, to see this in the context of of other moves by the administration. Why wouldn't respondents have concerns about confidentiality when this administration has said explicitly, you know, we're looking to root out non-citizens, you know? Um, right. You know, well... But then, of course, going on from that, if you undercount, what happens? There are many impacts that go to both the heart of our democratic system and also how that data is used by communities. For instance, 
that information is used by communities to decide if they need a new fire station. It has an impact on schools, resources in a community to deal with assistance for veterans, hospitals, transportation. And so the impacts are large. And then when it comes to our democracy, you know, democracy means everyone counts and has equal and fair representation. So one, it's important to ensure every person is counted accurately so that they have fair political representation. This data that they collect is used by states to draw district lines. And those district lines determine how many seats a state will have in the House of Representatives and also the maps drawn for state legislative districts. We already see some real challenges and the politicization of drawing maps that occurs every 10 years where incumbents like to select their voters rather than the other way around. But this actually rigs the system before we even get to the part of redistricting. And so that's one of the biggest challenges. And it's interesting because the Census Bureau has really tried for the last several decades to remove that kind of politicization and to work to make sure that they can get the best count they can. Back in 2010, the Census Bureau worked with community organizations to do outreach to let people know that the information that they collect is kept private and that nothing bad will happen to them if they comply and answer the census data. This move, I think, is going to really undermine that. It really it trashes that trust that's been that's been built up. Well, Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross presented it as a kind of a, just a dry, sober statistical matter. It has something to do with protecting voters, you know, enforcing the Voting Rights Act. It's a little too Orwellian, almost even to engage. But what I really wanted to say is, at the same time, the Trump re-election campaign is fundraising off this possible change to the census, making it clear that it really does have something to do with with what one of the former directors of the census, Kenneth Pruitt, said. It's a step toward not counting the people you don't want to count. That's right. Two things. One, this notion that the Voting Rights Act's enforcement is needed using census data has been debunked by Eric Holder, our former attorney general. He, as attorney general and his predecessors, never needed to get citizenship question on the census because they could use the data derived from the existing census process to use for any voting rights litigation. And actually, the Voting Rights Act, it was enacted in 1965, and the census hasn't included a citizenship question since 1950. So to suggest that now this administration is concerned about enforcement of the Voting Rights Act, you know, really is laughable. Doesn't pass the sniff test. And then to that point about not counting the people you don't want. And this is coming from a former director of the census. You know, six former directors of the census have written this letter saying this is a bad move, that it will dampen turnout. But then Pruitt goes on to say, no, I, I you know, we can actually see um, a strategy here. And it's, and it's an anti-democratic strategy. That's right. 
there's going to be more litigation besides the 12 states. I saw the NAACP is suing. We know California has already sued. So I expect that there are going to be many court challenges. And I'm not sure what that's going to mean for the timing of this. You know, usually if there are new questions, this is brought up early in the process. It's thoroughly vetted. Congress is involved in that process, and this is a very last-minute addition with no testing, and that's why it raises even greater concerns. Well, and that was going to be my final question, is what do you see happening? It sounds like a lot of lawsuits. Is there any way for, for folks to, to weigh in, or do we just kind of you know watch, watch what happens? I do think that it is important for citizens to let their elected officials know that a citizenship question is a bad decision for the census, for our communities, and for America, and they should be urging their members of Congress to weigh in against this citizenship question. And I also think that we will also see more litigation around this matter. So I don't think this is going to be a settled matter anytime soon. Before we get into the specific, what's the big picture here on these two court rulings today? Uh, it looks like the court has, uh, I guess, surprisingly punted in uh, in both of these cases. Yeah, I think um, the big takeaway here is really that the uh, court ducked. They had an opportunity in front of them in both of these cases, a really clear opportunity, I think. And that's what's so frustrating and sad about today um, is that both of these cases were fairly crystal clear as far as what happened. Mm -hmm. Um, You laid out Wisconsin really well. You know, 2012, Democrats get 174,000 more votes. Republicans take 60 of the 99 seats. Mm -hmm. Um, In in Maryland, you had um, a district, the 6th district, in which more people were shuffled in and out of it than any other district in the country in the 2011 redistricting process. You had a Democratic gerrymander in Maryland. You had the Republican gerrymander in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. It seemed like it was lining up that if the courts had wanted to step in here, they they could say it was bipartisan. They had a First Amendment challenge. They had a 14th Amendment challenge. And they had a buffet of statistical standards and evidence that all pointed in the same direction and that revealed exactly what had happened here. And instead, they ducked. Well, what did that, what happened here? And uh, let's start with Wisconsin. You got Gilvey Whitford. They had tossed out federal court, tossed out the entire state legislative map for the uh, uh, Wisconsin State Assembly. Uh, on what basis did the court find to? Uh, how is it that they came up with a reason to not rule one way or another here? What have they uh, ordered shall happen from here? Well, the ruling in Wisconsin is that the. Democratic voters who brought the lawsuit lacked standing to do so. So essentially that means that they could not prove direct injury to themselves or that their votes had been diluted within their individual districts. So as a result, they could not challenge a statewide map. They still had the opportunity to vote for their representative Mm -hmm. and to elect their representative, 
but they were challenging a statewide map and not their individual district map. Um, so the court sent it back to the lower court, um, which was a federal court, a three-judge panel ruled on this case mm-hmm. a year or so ago, to be re-argued um, and essentially invited them to you know, bring on more plaintiffs or to bring on other you know, statewide associations, perhaps like a political party, on board um, and to go ahead and re-argue that case. Is the suggestion there that they're going to have to literally in Wisconsin argue district by district, find plaintiffs in each district uh, to specifically argue why that specific district is a partisan gerrymander? I think that is what they are going to have to do. Yes, it's completely ridiculous, right? Because the idea that your vote the idea that your vote is not diluted mm-hmm. because you are able to cast a ballot in a gerrymandered district misses the entire point of what these gerrymanders do what these gerrymanders do is they sort voters by political purposes in order to make it possible for one party to entrench themselves in power for a decade it is a state the, the very act of gerrymandering a statewide map is statewide. Mm-hmm. It's made up of all of these districts, but all of them are, are pieces of a puzzle, right? right. Um, so to say that um, simply because you are allowed to vote in one of those districts and your vote still matters in that district does not mean that you are able to actually translate your vote into political power in the state capital, um, or that you have the ability to call back those legislators if they embark on a political course you disagree with. And we saw that uh, very specifically in the other case, certainly in Maryland, where there was just one uh, U.S. House district in question and where the Democrats actually admitted they uh, redrew this U.S. House district for partisan advantage. Am I am I correct that they didn't try to hide from that uh, in the Maryland case? They did not. The depositions in that case are are very clear. The the Democrats and the emails they talked about going after an eight zero map in that state when they realized they couldn't do that um, without putting a couple of incumbents at risk. Mm-hmm. They decided to draw a safe seven one map, and if you take a look at those districts in Maryland, they snake all over the state. Um, it's one of those. It's one of those times when you can simply look at a map and, and say, "Okay, um, you know, something is is wrong here." Um, and yet they didn't. They struck that one down too. The Supreme Court did, or at least punted it back. What, on on what basis? Why wasn't that one accepted? You would think the Republicans on the court would say, uh, "Take the opportunity to say, uh, yeah, we we don't like what the Democrats admitted doing here." Well. What the court said in that case was a little bit different. The court was being asked to um, force a new map to be drawn right now and to grant immediate relief in that case. Mm-hmm. The court declined to do so and instead sent it back down to the uh, the lower court to be re-argued and for that case to continue. The problem is, by punting, the clock is going to run out mm-hmm. on the on this entire cycle. Uh, these maps are in place for 10 years. 
they are adopted after the census in the zero year, so these 2011 maps are going to be around until after the 2020 election. Um, these decisions today essentially mean that the 2018 election is going to be run on unconstitutional maps, on maps that courts have declared unconstitutional yep. um, in North Carolina, in Wisconsin, that these Maryland voters are still not going to have, um, you know, an opportunity to, to, to elect a congressional delegation that actually reflects the uh, a partisan breakdown of the state. Yep. Um, and that this is, the Republicans have essentially been able to run out the clock to steal in some ways the entire decade um, of power, especially in state legislatures around the country. And it's going to set up a, a 2020 process, um, unless if somehow the court does something um, before then, that is an even greater partisan free-for-all than it even was last time. And it looks like they're going to have another opportunity, whether they take it or not, I don't know, another opportunity at least before the 2010 census in North Carolina, where you have a federal court uh, for the first time has found the entire North Carolina U.S. House map to be an unlawful uh, partisan gerrymander. They've ordered U.S. House maps, new U.S. House maps for the entire state. That case, uh, I guess, did not come in time to be heard by the Supreme Court this, uh, this past term. So, uh, but they did put it on hold until, I guess, next term for a ruling, uh, next year, I guess, next June at this point at the earliest. So that means, yeah, as you say, they've, they're they're able even if this goes the right way uh next year they will have gotten away with almost an entire decade stealing uh various uh US house and uh state legislative seats doesn't it underscore the fact that we have a real problem here if they can get away with this scam if they can do something 10 years ago and basically election after election after election get away with it we have a serious problem and it is only getting worse the kind of technology and partisan tent that um, made this possible in 2010 and 2011 has only intensified. Um, when map makers sit down in 2021 after this census, which, as we know and as you've covered so well, is also fraught with you know so many different political problems, mm-hmm. um, they are going to have more data better technology, and they will be able to draw even more surgically precise maps. And that litigation will presumably begin (laughs) right after 2022, and it will probably run until 2029, um, and another decade will be lost. The court had a moment here when it had the opportunity to stand up for a democracy and for fairness and the idea that every vote counts. Justice Kennedy laid out a standard 14 years ago in the Veith case out of Pennsylvania the last time this came mm-hmm. before the court. And the the lawyers in the Maryland and Wisconsin case followed his roadmap precisely. And Kennedy today still has not seen enough to actually do something. Um, and it is to all of our detriment as we head toward 2018 and 2020. Um, fair maps and votes counting should not be a partisan issue. It should be a basic issue of small-D democratic rights. And 
we are getting farther and farther away from that, and it's going to be very ugly. In case you didn't know it, you can be part of the show. Voicemail messages from listeners just like you have been the basis for all kinds of interesting conversations we've had over the years in the voicemail and final comment section at the end of each episode. So whether you want to agree, disagree, or simply have a question, we would love to hear from you. The number to dial is 202-999-3991. So today we're talking about voter registration, specifically the case for automatic voter registration and other reforms to make voting easier. Why do we have to register to vote in the first place? If we all become eligible when we turn 18, why isn't it automatic? On any given election day, people show up to the polls to vote only to find out that they aren't registered or if they live in a place like New York and wanted to change their political party, they would have had to have that change of heart a year before in order to do so for the election. So if we make the registration process an opt out process instead of an opt in, we could add 50 million people to the voter rolls. States could save thousands, if not millions of dollars, and it would actually increase the ease and accuracy of voting. Here to talk to me about this and more is Susan Lerner, the Executive Director of Common Cause New York. Susan joined Common Cause in 2007, and before that, she was the Executive Director of the California Clean Money Campaign. Susan, welcome to Sunday Civics. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So, Susan, part of Common Cause's work is to modernize voter registration systems so that voters can, I don't know, maybe register online or make sure that registration is automatic. What's in our way from making that happen? Well, a couple of things. Um, antiquated systems and bad attitudes on the part of some of our elected officials who don't understand what a barrier to exercising the franchise antiquated registration procedures can be. You know, a lot of people say, oh, I didn't find it hard to register. I don't understand why there's a problem. But the truth of the matter is that if you actually push a little bit, then you might find that somebody said, oh, I never had a problem, has a sister-in-law or a friend who forgot to register when they moved and weren't able to vote. So it's actually a pervasive problem that hits uh, all communities, and it's particularly a problem in communities of color and communities that have traditionally been marginalized where people don't have as much control over their schedules uh, and find it harder to complete what is, frankly, sometimes very confusing paperwork. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, um, you know, we're doing the process for the resources part of our show of going to each state's uh, website to find out what the laws are, the procedures for registering and voting. Um, and even on the individual websites, it can, it's a lot of text. It can be confusing is do I need ID to register or only to vote? And then what type of ID? And then how long do I have to register in advance before election day? Um, what, what, what is the case against automatic voter registration or even registration the same day as election day? 
Well, you know, some people are frightened that there would be a security issue, that people were ineligible, these fictional millions of uneligible voters who uh, the current president says, you know, constantly vote. Um, these allegations we hear about busloads of people coming from one state to another to, to fraudulently vote. And, you know, these are all myths. <laughs> it's simply not anything which has ever happened. And there really have not been substantial problems. In fact, what we've seen, amazingly and ironically enough, is when there are problems with people trying to fraudulently register, they tend to be people who are trying to show the system's broken, who then get caught for trying to vote twice or to fraudulently register. So security is the excuse that's used. But in actuality, what we've seen is an automatic voter registration system properly set up is actually more secure than our current registration system and really helps to be sure that eligible voters are actually on the voter rolls and voter rolls that are much more accurate and what database people call cleaner. Now, but but is there some complications with that when you're talking about, because remember, um, for those of you who are listening, there is no central database of registered voters. This is part of the reason when we talked about on a previous show, why so many states, both Republican led and Democrat led, were in a opposition to the request from the current administration to send their voter registration list because there doesn't exist this centralized database. So we're talking about each state developing their own process. Are we not, Susan? We are, but we already have that requirement in the help, excuse me, Help America Vote Act. Every state is required to have a database of registered voters. And some states have set up communications between them and uh, among them in order to, to ensure that when somebody moves from one state to another, that they're appropriately removed off their former state's voter rolls and properly placed on their current state's voter rolls. So there are correct ways to do this. The problem is that we have some forces um, who are currently allied with the current federal administration who actually want to use the process of being sure our voter rolls are accurate to improperly remove people. So we have to be very vigilant. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the the removal process and how that would intersect with automatic voter registration. Because when we talk, well, let's step back a second. If we're talking about automatic voter registration, we're mm -hmm. saying when you become when you become eligible, which is turning 18, you are automatically registered to vote. Well, there are two different ways to do it. Sure. Okay? Here in the United States, Right now, the way in which automatic voter registration is rolling out in various states is that it isn't what you're talking about, which is you turn 18 and automatically you're on the voter rolls. The way in which it's actually been implemented is when you interact with state government, mm. then you go on the voter rolls. And that's when it becomes an opt-out 
situation, okay? So your listeners might be familiar with the situation when you go to the Department of Motor Vehicles and you've moved into the state or you've moved addresses. In many states, because of the motor voter rule at the federal level, um, the Department of Motor Vehicles is required to say to you, do you want to change your voter registration? Right. That's called an opt-in system. What's really interesting, and it's fascinating that the state of Georgia implemented this, because we don't always think of them as being very forward-thinking in Georgia, is that Georgia made a really significant increase to the eligible voters on its voter rolls by changing its DMV form from an opt-in to an opt-out. So you go and you interact with the Georgia Department of Motor Vehicles, They have all the information that you need to be on the voter rolls. And unless you tell them, nah, I don't want you to do that, then you're automatically on the voter rolls. That increased the number of registered voters in Georgia by hundreds of thousands. Mm. And and, and most people, um, you know, I can think of 18-year-olds or even younger, um, when you're eligible to get a learner's permit um, or getting your driver's license in a, a, you know, that's the, the current the American trope, right? You, as soon as you can, <laughs> you want to learn how to drive and get your license so you can get up out of your parents' house whenever you feel like it, right? So we will already, from um, lots of young people having learner's permits, they're basically pre-registered to vote at that point. That's right. Now, of course, the limitation on the Department of Motor Vehicles is your point of contact is that, yes, there are a lot of Americans, and I was certainly one the moment I was 16, 7 o'clock in the morning. I was like, okay, Mom, let's go. Let's get me the learner's permit. <laughs> but if you live in a large city, you may not have that desire. You may not have access to a car. So what we're working to do is to be sure that automatic voter registration expands beyond the DMV. Because there are a lot of state agencies that people interact with uh, that could be used to automatically register them. So the state of Alaska is a really interesting example for that, okay? Your listeners may or may not be aware that in Alaska, every resident of Alaska registers in order to receive his or her share of the royalties from oil and gas that the state collects. They actually get checks. So the initiative in Alaska to set up automatic voter registration used signing up for your oil and gas royalty check as the way in which to automatically register you to vote. So it's basically identifying what uh, city, uh, state agencies or federal agencies people interact with on a regular basis and then using that information. So you could say use Social Security or you could use public housing if for people that are in uh, the public housing or maybe get any type of social services. That's exactly right. The social services is an excellent place in which we could uh, use automatic voter registration. There are just so many different ways in which people interact with their state government, and we want it to be our state government because that's where voter registration happens. And it's just a question of setting up the system and being sure that the accurate records are transmitted to the Board of Elections. Mm. Well, this seems like uh, an an 
opportunity, um, as we say on this show, to bring about what type of civic action can an individual take in order to help advance this issue? So what can the individual user, uh, listener, um, take from this conversation, Susan, and use it to take civic action in their state? So, you know, this is a question of talking to your elected representatives. There are 10 states in the District of Columbia right now which have automatic voter registration. So they have it in uh, in Washington State. They have it in Alaska. They have it in Rhode Island. They have it in Illinois. So first thing to do is to check and see if your state has it. And then it's get in touch with your state representatives and your governor and say, this is a no-brainer. This is absolutely a way to ensure that eligible voters have an opportunity to vote and that our voter rolls are secure and accurate. And, you know, it's really interesting when Washington State set up its automatic voter registration. They added close to a million people to the voter rolls right away. And the point of contact there was the Department of Motor Vehicles because on the West Coast, most people drive. What was really interesting is that of the people who were automatically registered, 40% of those people then voted in the next election. Wow. Wow. So you really have a substantial impact, and it's really not that complicated to set up correctly. It's something that every state should be doing. And the message to eligible citizens is your government wants you to participate. And you know the best way to get people involved is to ask them to be involved. Yeah, we we talk about a study that uh, Pew Research Center put out um, about a year or two ago in saying that over 60% of people said they had never even been asked whether by a family member, a government entity, an agency, their church or other, they had never asked them to register to vote. Um, Did you find that surprising when you read that? No, I didn't find that surprising at all because our system here in the United States, to me, is backwards. It puts all of the emphasis on the individual has to figure it out and initiate everything. In countries where that is flipped, where it's the government's responsibility to be sure that citizens have access and are able to vote. In Canada, for instance, they invite you to register. They have much higher registration rates. They have much higher participation rates. Well, thank you very much, Susan, for joining us for this conversation. And remember, folks, those of you who are listening, this is your seven, your second uh, civ- uh, take civic action uh, for today to write your legislature, uh, to talk to your governor or uh, send a letter to your governor, because we know letters get responses, uh, to ask them about implementing automatic voter registration in your state. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies. Owned by the richest dude in the world. That one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then. Maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases. I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case... 
You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. Behind all this legal jockeying is still the fundamental question. What is the best way to represent minorities in America? And that's not just a legal debate. It's a moral and philosophical one. I have never personally been one that think that increasing the numbers of the Black Caucus in Congress, for example, necessarily equated to a plus for the African-American community. Again, Derek Smith, a political action chair for the state NAACP. They can ensure that African-Americans get sent to legislative bodies, and that looks good on Election Day when they can stand up and say, look, look at what we did for you all. We helped get Eva Clayton and Mel Watt into Congress in the 1990s. But on the whole, the effect was that that was when the state began to shift towards a Republican-dominated caucus, and that happened all throughout the South. He's in favor of African-American voters influencing various districts. I've always thought that African-American voices that are numerous and loud enough and active in uh, many different places lend to the likelihood that policy decisions uh, will consider African-Americans more than they do. And white and black Democrats can form coalitions to elect minority candidates more easily than they were once able to in North Carolina. Smith points to a famous example. President Obama is a classic example of that. If we confuse together on common interests which affect the governance for the good of all, then it doesn't matter your race. Reggie Weaver of Common Cause tends to agree. An argument has been made that, yes, in, in justification of racially packed districts, um, that minority candidates would, would not be elected any other way. There may be some truth to that. I don't know. To me, then, the answer isn't to pack districts and weaken the minority voice in other areas. He says that that won't get at the root of the problem. What I personally am more interested in is, you know, why is it? You know, why is it that I, as an African-American, I'm going to have a weaker chance in a purely competitive district just along partisan lines? You know, why is it? And I think that that gets to deeper questions that we are yet to resolve um, as a country about, um, about race. But the idea that less emphasis should be put on race when drawing districts is not a universal one. Again, here's Pam Stubbs, who worked in Greensboro's 12th district office when it was first won by Mel Watt in 1993. Until the playing ground is level in America, then we will always need our minority districts. And so far, the playing ground is not level. Stubbs is unsure that African-American lawmakers will maintain their ranks if these districts are dismantled. And academic research suggests that that could cause some ripple effects. The presence of minority lawmakers can boost voter turnout among minorities. It can also increase their trust and engagement with politicians. One study, done after Democrats began drawing down the black populations in minority districts in the 2000s, 
showed that minority members of Congress are more likely to advocate for their community's priorities than white members of the same party. You have to realize most of those minority districts were created after the 1990 census when there was hardly any minority representation across the country in, in Congress. So even though they're safe now, you have to understand why they were created. Case in point, visit the Civil Rights Museum in Greensboro. My name is Cassandra Williams, and I would like to personally welcome you to the International Civil Rights Center and Museum. The museum is situated in the Woolworths Department Store, where four black A&T University students sat down at a segregated lunch counter. Four college freshmen, all Negroes, were refused service at a Greensboro, North Carolina lunch counter, and the civil rights sit-in was born. So we're here at the lunch counter, and I want you to realize that uh, on this one side, the counter and the stools are at the same exact spot as they were in 1960. It actually gives us the feeling, the experience of being right here at this lunch counter along with those young men and others experiencing what it felt like to be denied service just based on the color of your skin. Throughout the museum, there are other reminders of the injustices committed against African-Americans in the South. There was violence. Here, as we see men, women, and children attending what was often advertised as an evening's entertainment to come and watch the lynching, the burning of persons uh, African-American descent. It was, uh, in many cases, the mob became judge, jury, and executioner. There were also arbitrary tests meant to disenfranchise black voters. Some states or cities used a jar of beans on the counter, having people to guess the correct number of beans in the jar. It wasn't, though, about the correct number of beans in the jar. It was about the color of a person's skin. Then, when you arrive at the Voting Rights Act section of the museum, there's a striking installment. Now, when we look at this list uh, on the wall here, you see African-Americans elected to federal or statewide constitutional offices. It's a floor-to-ceiling list showing the date African-American lawmakers were elected from each state. Let's look at North Carolina. In the years right after the Civil War, during Reconstruction, we see that there were four black men elected to represent the state of North Carolina in the House of Representatives. But then we see about a hundred year gap before Mrs. Eva Clayton was elected to represent uh, North Carolina. In state after state across the South, that 100 year gap persisted. We see that same gap in South Carolina. We see it in Alabama, Florida. We see 1871 and then another hundred year gap is there. We can see it in Georgia in Louisiana from 1875 and then not until 1991. In many states, that gap only ends in the early 1990s when states were forced to draw majority black districts. So it's easy to understand why the conversation about majority minority districts can be so contentious and emotional. If the law favors unpacking minority districts, it could become more difficult to ensure that African-Americans are elected at the same rates that they have been. For example, North Carolina's state legislative map is currently being redrawn 
to unpack the majority-minority districts. The chair of the Legislative Black Caucus, Angela Bryant, is likely to lose her seat in the redraw. I surely regret uh, losing my district and the coalition that have been formed in that district. I regret that. At the same time, the gerrymandering is, was a burden. She says it's for the best. I'm convinced that even if people like me lose out to have a firm foundation upon which we are doing this redistricting, we will be better off over time. Actually, a bipartisan problem. I mean, it is. Sure, it is not. Sure. You know, it, it it seems as though you and I are talking about it as though you know it redounds to the benefit to the Democrats. Blah blah blah. But the truth is, I mean, one of the things we learned in the Maryland case is it's really bad, no matter who does it, and the yes. impulse to do it is equally strong, no matter what party you're in. This is actually an area where the court could just do the country a massive bipartisan service. And create some standards, right? And that's that's been our, our hope, and it continues to be that. And of course, there's no uh, monopoly on um, interest in doing this practice in one party. Um, it happened to be that the Republicans were in a very effective position to do it in 2011, 2010 being an extraordinarily good Republican year. Uh, plus, there was a lot of really um, careful planning to take over some of these legislatures. Uh, but in the past, there's lots of history of Democratic gerrymanders, um, California being a famous example before they got their independent commission. Uh, and, uh, you know, so uh, the, the problem is certainly not a, a, a Republican or Democratic problem. It's an American problem. It's a, it's a problem of democracy. And, and if I'm right about the one thing that I seem to write in every second column, that folks are really losing confidence in voting generally – and that, you know, we're going to talk about Houston in a minute and voter purges in a minute and ID and, you know, the, the vote fraud commission. But this is just another log on the fire to convince Americans that your vote just doesn't matter. So why bother? I mean, it just seems in terms of signaling as though it's such a dispiriting signal that the court says this is just too political to get involved in it. But like the political effect is a greater loss of confidence in the power of your vote. Right. I mean, it's not an area where I think the court, if it's thinking correctly, should just say, we're just not going to do this because we don't want to seem political. That is a political act of massive proportions that makes the democracy worse. Can you tell me for one second, Paul, whether you have confidence that what what fixes this is the states. And of course, I'm thinking of Pennsylvania, which just does mm. it. Uh, the state Supreme Court says, you know what? We're not waiting around anymore. We're checking a map. Is that going to be the fix? You know, it, it, it may be in a few places. It takes a state Supreme Court that is sufficiently apolitical or perhaps a political in the opposite direction from the legislature for that to happen. Uh, the uh, in many states, the state supreme courts are pretty politicized. Uh, in, you know, they run they run partisan races for for the supreme court, uh, and so I think that it may be that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision is going to be a, 
not not a not a not commonly replicated in the future, but people will try, and certainly they should. There's no reason why, if the U.S. Supreme Court says we're not going to uh, let these cases be litigated under the U.S. Constitution, why uh, people can't uh, litigate them under state constitutions. And the Pennsylvania case is an example. If if we don't succeed in getting the U.S. Supreme Court to help us here uh, eventually, I think that that will be one strategy, and the other will be uh, a mounting. A popular revolt that's pushing for independent commissions all over the country. And is there some steam? I mean, do you feel like that is a movement that is burgeoning and growing? Or do you think it's something that people chatter about? I know there are groups doing extraordinary work, but do you feel as though that could happen? Or is this another area where we're just too politicized and angry to make progress on those fronts. Well, it's on the ballot in four states this fall. Um, a good example is Michigan where there was a citizens group, a real grassroots group, got together, went out and gathered signatures to get it on the ballot to, for a state constitutional amendment. And the, without any paid uh, people, they got something like 450,000 signatures to put it on the ballot. So uh, there, I think there was a lot of popular sentiment. This case, the Gill case, uh, tremendous amount of public interest in it. When I did the Veith case in 2004, nobody even was aware that we were even doing it. So I think the perception is very different. Uh, there is uh, There are groups all over the country pushing for this in those states that don't have independent commissions. And so I think uh, – uh, my sense is that, that that will continue to be what direction will go. It'll just take a very, very long time. It's, in many states, it's hard to get a state constitutional amendment on the ballot. Uh, you have to pass it, for example, in Virginia. I believe it's true in Wisconsin, too. You have, the legislature has to pass it first twice in two sessions, consecutive sessions, which ain't going to happen in a lot of places. Can we turn for a minute to Husted, which was the Ohio uh, voter purge case? And I I feel like that happened 270 years ago, but I believe it was within the last few weeks. Um, you argued that as well. Do you want to just – I know it, it is such a thorny – it's a statutory case and it involved, a, you know, mind-numbing interpretation. But can you just quickly lay out what happened there and what the court decided? Right. This is a case brought by Demos and ACLU in Ohio uh, challenging the Ohio – practice of purging people from the voting rolls, uh, essentially for not voting uh, often enough. Uh, and this whole area of what when you can purge and when you can't is regulated under federal statutory law, the National Voter Registration Act. Uh, and it was a confusingly written law, and then it was uh, it got even more confusing 10 years later when the Congress amended it. Uh, but essentially, one of the key principles of that law is that you cannot be thrown off the voting rolls for not voting, that you have a right uh, not to vote, and that is not a basis uh, for throwing you off. Uh, and they also created this kind of confirmation procedure where if the state is thinking you of throwing you off the rolls for, because they think you've moved to another state, they have to give you a notice. It has to be forwardable to wherever you are, and then they have to wait four more years before they can of non-voting before they can put you off. And what the state of Ohio does is it says, well, all right, if you don't vote for one two-year cycle, we're going to go straight into that process of the notice and the four more years of non-voting. And essentially what happens is then people – uh, don't vote for six years, uh, and they fail to return one, uh, notice that they get in the mail, which is something like 70, 75% of the people who get it just throw it in the trash. Uh, and you end up with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people being purged, 
uh, on the theory that they've moved to another state when all that's really happened is they haven't voted for six years. Uh, and uh, the great irony of the case is you have a right not to vote for six years, but somehow because there's this notice that gets sent in the middle of that period, the court held five to four that we're not going to treat this as if the state has purged you solely for non-voting. We're going to say you're purged solely for non-voting and, be- and throwing a piece of uh, mail that you got from the state in the, in the trash. <clears throat> and Justice Alito writing that opinion makes this point. He says, we're not punishing you for not voting. We're uh, This is a proxy for moving. This is a good proxy for moving. We're not going to second guess. Uh, Justice uh, uh, Breyer writes a dissent. Justice Sotomayor writes mm-hmm. a dissent where she's particularly solicitous of the fact that it's the elderly and the veterans and the minorities and the people in the big cities who are all getting purged. They're not actually moving out of state. Right. Uh, and and uh, the majority seems to be unbothered. They say, you know, this this is this is fine. Uh, is this another one of those cases that I, I actually think this will have a huge impact going forward? Well, what's scary, I guess, is that Ohio was the most aggressive at following this kind of a policy of, of using a period of non-voting to trigger the, 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 the confirmation process, the notice and the four more years. Uh, and they did it based just on missing one, you know, sort of one midterm election, one two-year period. Uh, and that now is the uh, template that others can copy around the country if they too want to engage in aggressive vote purges, which all they do – all the studies show they do disparately impact poorer people, people of color, people who have much less flexibility in their lives to vote, uh, less resources. Uh, and so it, it is a way to shave a little bit of uh, – of the electorate off uh, with a clear partisan uh, impact. We had Dale Ho on the show teeing up. I remember that. <laughs> and he he said something that I've, I've been thinking about and I guess I want to ask you about. He said the reason to be more anxious about the vote purges in Houston, even than Gill, is that that all happens under cover of darkness, that it's really um, – it's, it's, it's very easy, uh, to construct ways to purge your roles. And it doesn't happen flagrantly and openly the way gerrymanders happen. And then I think he added the even more dispiriting comment that then it becomes very hard to litigate and very costly to litigate. Is that your experience? Well, I, I think there's kind of two different things going on. The, the process that we were challenging in, in Husted is, was pretty open. It was, it was written into the regulations and it was kind of something you could follow. And you, you, if you were new to check, you could go check to see if you've been purged or not. They don't tell you, but you, you could check. The, the, the other concern, and I think this may have been what Dale was talking about, is there's a lot of stuff going on at the local level where people just disappear from the voting rolls. Uh, we had people in Alabama showing up to vote. They had voted in uh, 2016. This is in the Roy Moore election and they just weren't there anymore. Uh, we had people showing up in Richmond to vote uh, in, in 2016 and uh, they had – their regist- their, these are the inner city Richmond. Their, their addresses had been changed to the uh, affluent suburb somewhere. Uh, so they weren't allowed to vote. You know, none of that was actually – that was just a lot of funny business going on and that's very hard to police. So here's my, my last big picture question, Paul. <laughs> And it's, this is going to be a big one, I can tell. Well, no, I'm just, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, our election system is so broken. I can't remember who 
wrote it uh, after after he said was decided. Like, why are we using mail? Who looks at mail? Who under the age of 60 ever opens some rando thing they get that sits on their kitchen counter? I mean, it, and we're using post offices and we're I mean, the system is broken. And then we're relying on these crazy old school presumptions like mail. And then we have insane problems with our, you know, our, our, how our voting works. And we have insane problems with registration and we have insane problems with voting machines that are all crazy. It's all just awful. And I guess I just, my, my producer just doubled over laughing in the booth, but I, I guess I just think, why do we only think about how bad voting is for the week before an election mm-hmm. in November? Why don't we get ahead of this monstrous, intractable problem and fix it nationwide? I guess that's what motor voter well, was there, that, to the, do, the, the National Voter Registration Act was trying to do that. Then there was a, the, the, the act 10 years later was Help America Vote Act. And there, there have been efforts by Congress to improve the system to have statewide registration, uh, state registries. And uh, the, in fact, a lot of good things were done through those statutes uh, to eliminate some of the really abusive practices that existed before. And, and it used to be that the registration was only at the county. You didn't even know – the state didn't even know who was registered. Um, and so things have gotten better in some ways, but they've gotten worse in other ways. And part of it is deliberate, you know, these voter ID problems, voter registration problems. A lot of that is, is deliberate. Uh, and that, you know, and a lot of the problems we have come from the fact that the system is so uh, decentralized. We have state by state. Which also, though, is in some ways the virtue of it. It makes it much harder for some nefarious foreign power to come in and take over the system if it's all over the place, run by all sorts of different places, people of different machines and different computers and things. So in some ways, uh, maybe that's that's, <laughs> that's what's going to save us. Yeah. <laughs> the upside is that they can only hack North Dakota and they just, can't get all exactly. of it. Well, I will sleep better tonight uh, knowing, knowing that that's the bulwark against massive Russian hacking. So, so I guess, I, I mean, the, the underpinning of my question is, do people care enough to fix this or it's just too much? I mean, what would it take if you and I agree? And I think we do that gerrymandering is really a th- threat to democracy as we know it, that purges are a threat, that we should be encouraging people to vote. We want to make it easier. Uh, how do we get people to think that this is something that matters and that there is something to be done rather than flinging up their hands and saying that, you know, Vladimir Putin votes for me? My own sense is that there's greater interest in improving and protecting our democracy right now than there has been in many years, maybe ever. Uh, and so uh, and the, 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 the popular push for independent commissions for gerrymandering is a good example uh, I think that in, you know, the, 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 there's no substitute though for p- public pressure to fix the problems. And, you know, we may have to have a really terrible set of problems even more than we've had before, before these problems get fixed. But there's no reason to think that we can't do it. It's not technologically impossible. It's not like it's, we just have to have a political will to make the system better.
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, build the blue wave. Confirm, prepare, and get out the vote for the midterms 2018. November is coming, and there's been a lot of talk about a so-called blue wave that I'm sure many are already taking for granted, but we must keep reminding ourselves that the wave will not happen simply because we feel like it will. It's going to take work, it's going to take our free time and weekends, it's going to take our limited patience and energy, and it's absolutely the most important thing we will do in the Trump era. With a deluge of voter suppression laws in recent years, voting isn't easy. It requires research and, depending on your situation, may require time-sensitive actions ahead of Election Day. So here are your steps and resources for becoming a blue wave builder as we head into the midterm elections. Number one, double, triple, maybe even quadruple check that you are registered and on the voter rolls. Sadly, this is not just an action for people who have recently moved. This is for everyone. During the primaries, there were multiple reports of long-time residents heading to the polls only to find out that they were not on the rolls. Those voters had to fill out provisional ballots, and with many states looking for any reason to purge as many voters as they can, every single one of us needs to be on guard when it comes to our voter registration status. Go to rockthevote.org and under the Resources tab, use the Voter Registration Lookup tool. You just enter your information to confirm or check your voter registration for your current address, and the results are almost instant. It'd be wise to check multiple times leading up to November 6th. And number two, make sure you and everyone you know understands your state's voter ID laws inside and out. Did your name change recently? If you live in a state with a voter ID law, you may need to get a new ID to ensure your name matches your voter registration. VoteWriters.org focuses entirely on helping people understand voter ID laws in their states and getting what they need to vote. You can check out their voter ID info cards for each state on their website and or call their hotline for help at 844-338-8743. Now number three, know your state's cutoff date for voter registration and absentee ballot dates and rules. When it comes to registering, every state is different. Some let you register to vote the day before Election Day, and others have registration cutoffs months in advance. Some states require certain excuses to request an absentee ballot. Learn these rules for your state and be an evangelist for voting knowledge. Again, go to rockthevote.org and under the Get Ready to Vote dropdown, select State Information. There, you'll be able to easily find your state's election dates and deadlines and a whole bunch of other state-specific information. Number four, help other people with steps one, two, and three. Whether it's an elderly family member or neighbor, a super busy parent you know, or a first-time voter, help educate people in your community on your state's laws and encourage them to not only register, but confirm their voter registration and prepare for voter ID laws. Drive them to the town hall or the DMV if they need a ride, or offer to watch the kids while they go. Support each other in the name of democracy, and don't forget to share this info via social media too. And finally, number five, join a get-out-the-vote effort. There is so much on the line in this election, and the results will impact the country for decades to come, especially the most vulnerable among us. We need people on the ground canvassing and registering voters early. Find a local chapter of a get-out-the-vote effort like Rock the Vote and Next Gen America, or get-out-the-vote arms of organizations like the ACLU, the NAACP, NARAL, the League of Women Voters, and Let America Vote. 
we have the power to build a blue tsunami in November if we all work together. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if making sure the blue wave becomes a reality is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. We've just heard clips today starting with Counterspin, speaking with Karen Hobart Flynn about the importance of the census and its connection to gerrymandering. The broadcast spoke with gerrymandering expert David Daly about how the Supreme Court punted on two opportunities to weigh in on partisan gerrymandering. Sunday Civics made the case for automatic voter registration and gave tips on how to get involved. The Gerrymandering Project laid out two of the opposing arguments, making the connection between partisan gerrymandering and the districts drawn on racial lines to abide by the Voting Rights Act. Amicus discussed how the failure to address gerrymandering is helping to chip away at citizens' faith in the democratic system. And finally, you just heard our activism for today to do the most effective thing most people can do in an election year— prepare for the upcoming election. For further explanation on the subject, I recommend checking out the broadcast for all things election integrity, from secure and accountable voting systems, to voting rights and suppression, to gerrymandering, and everything in between. And I would also say that the entire miniseries from the Gerrymandering Project, which itself is a project of 538.com, is definitely worth your time. The only thing I heard said in that series that sounded like a glaring error was the suggestion that the technology behind gerrymandering hasn't changed much since the 80s. Uh, I don't know how they managed to get through a six-part series on the topic and never run across any of the reporting from David Daly and his book, Rat Fucked, uh, in which he lays out exactly how far that technology has come, but they did. Otherwise, the reporting is great and insight into gerrymandering and all of its complications is worth learning about, but they definitely seem to not understand how much it's changed since uh, 2010. Uh, now, as always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we would normally hear from you, but uh, we're again in a situation where we have no voicemails. But I do have one mysterious beat poetry submission. The forest was shrinking. But the trees kept voting for the axe because its handle was made of wood, and they thought it was one of them. So thanks to Alan from Connecticut for that. I'm not sure if he was intending to send that to us or if that was supposed to go to his agent to be added to his sizzle reel. Not sure, but uh, we got it and hope you enjoyed it. I added the symbols. I felt like it needed a little something there at the end. Um, but now here at the end of the show, I, I just want to add a couple more things like as if we needed any more reasons why gerrymandering is terrible. There, there's one thing I heard uh, during my research for today's show that got me thinking and none of the options are good. I'm not sure if I agree with what this person said, but um, if they're not right, then there's like an equally bad explanation to uh, to take its place. What this commenter said is that one of the worst outcomes of gerrymandering is that it, it creates a party in power that is there illegitimately 
and they know it. They will never, ever say it in public, but they know it. And so what this person was arguing is that that dynamic of sort of knowing that your power is illegitimate and may be taken away sometime soon because if someone catches on or if the laws change or if the gerrymandering is taken away, then you know, like, you're probably going to be gone. And so the dynamic of that creates this incentive to do what he, what this commenter described as like the worst aspects of what your party stands for, like the least popular things. And I'm not sure that that's exactly true. I mean, you could, you could make an equally believable argument going in exactly the other direction. You could say that gerrymandering creates a scenario in which your seats are so safe that you actually don't feel like uh, not you might feel like you're there illegitimately but you know that the dynamics of the election are such that you can do whatever you want and you won't lose your seat so there's there's no instinct to be moderate there, there's no instinct to you know moderate your uh your baser instincts for legislation. There's no moderating effect on taking whatever corporations say they want from you and ushering it unquestioningly into law. And, and, and so I feel like that dynamic, the, the gerrymandering creates a mentality in the politician. Honestly, it could go either way, but the result is identical either way. And they're both terrible. So, you know, gerrymandering is bad because it, basically squashes what people actually desire to have happen in their uh, government in what is sort of a democracy slash republic. So it, it's bad. It's un-American for all those reasons. But in the nuts and bolts, for whatever reason, whichever argument you prefer, it creates a dynamic where it encourages a party to become more extreme and do what is least popular. So it's not just that the country is getting the party in power that they voted against. It's they're getting a version of that party that is even farther away from what they want. So just to, just to, you know, add another reason to the pile that uh, gerrymandering is terrible and destroying democracy. And, and then secondly, I read a, uh, an impassioned Facebook post this past week. Um, I guess Amanda passed it on to me written by a guy who was, I think, responding to Kennedy's announcement that he was stepping down from the Supreme Court. And he was writing this inspirational-ish article just on Facebook about uh, how we really shouldn't be saying that we're fucked for all of the different reasons, for all the reasons that it, so many other countries have been in such worse places than we have been and come back from it uh, just from the fact that there are still options to right this ship. Like for all the reasons he's saying, look, I understand why you would emotionally say, well, geez, now we're really fucked, but you just can't say it and really mean it because you're misunderstanding the dynamics at play. If you really think, okay, we're done. It's impossible. We can't move forward from here. Then you're just wrong is his argument. And that's all fine and good. I, I generally agree with all of that. What I want to highlight though, and what pissed me off is not because I disagree with what he said, but what he said was that he comes from 
an extreme far left mentality dabbling in the anarchism wing of political thought. And what he just sort of like briefly references in an offhand sort of way is that people from that wing, this, this political mentality that he has been a part of, have had it more or less driven into them that voting is not the way to go and that like buying into the system is not the way to go or, or you know, working within the system, trying to get power within the system. Because, you know, if you're trying to tear down the system, you I guess you do it from the outside. I'm not super familiar with their strategy or or what they say amongst themselves, but he he reminded me of of this far left wing mentality to do away with politics and, and just eschew the whole thing and not be involved. I feel like there's a direct line that can be drawn from you know 50 years ago when I mean I don't even know when the stupid little catchphrases about not voting were, were, you know, originally phrased the don't vote. It just encourages the bastards or the better one. If voting mattered, they wouldn't let you do it. You can draw a straight line from those all the way right up to what this guy is saying about the current batch of far left politically minded people who think it's a better strategy to not vote. And I just can't even begin to wrap my mind around that. I, I think the most telling of those phrases is that second one I, I said that, you know, if voting mattered, they wouldn't let you do it. All you have to do is look at what the far right wants, and they have been trying to stop people from voting for decades. So that phrase is right, and it shouldn't be an excuse to not vote because it makes it sound like it doesn't matter, it should be a call to action to vote. Because if it mattered, they wouldn't let you do it. And guess what? They are trying as hard as they can to not let you do it. So what more evidence do you need? Clearly, you do not want to align yourself with the far right, who is making every effort to stop people from voting, because they obviously appear to believe that it matters. As always, keep the voicemails coming in. If you have comments, questions, or poetry you want to submit, the number is 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.